Hey all, welcome to episode 88 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm your host, Andy Corrigan. Uh, with me this week is Andrew Brown. Hello. Uh, no Ginny this week. She's uh, living it up with Fraser and Niles in Seattle for uh, PAX West. Uh, so we'll be hearing from her about all the things she's played and all the things she's seen and the people she spoke to. Uh, so you've got that to look forward to. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Hotline Miami 2, wrong number, some more on Doom 3. The stupendous September that's coming up, uh, starting today, actually. Uh, Bastion, uh, Transistor, Pinball FX3, uh, the Fallout 4 table in particular, and Collection of Mana. Uh, so let's get into it and we'll get on with the updates from previous episodes. Okay, so first up is uh, Hotline Miami 2, wrong number. I, I played like maybe an hour or so last week of this as part of the Hotline Miami collection which I grabbed just before it got banned from the Australian eShop. Uh, at the time, I said it was kind of like more of the same, but with a different story, and that, that kind of still held water uh, now that I've beaten it. Um, it is very similar, similar rhythm, similar music. The story, however, I thought I was enjoying it a lot more until I got to the end, where nothing was really made clear, nothing was resolved, uh, and it didn't feel like it said anything, whereas the previous game you know, had a message. Um, it sort of kept me going throughout on this uh, intrigue of these several plots, um, and then they never came together really, so in that respect it didn't really deliver, so I was a little little disappointed with it from that aspect. Which is weird, like, thematically, because there, there is, you know, parallels to the first game with uh, the characters getting weird phone calls, telling them to go do these horrible things, um, and forcing them into these horrific assaults on these, you know, different um, shady businesses and things. Uh, But it just never had that same underline to it. Uh, Thankfully, the gameplay is still really fun. Uh, I had a lot of fun working my way through this one. It's a longer game than the first Hotline Miami. And it's certainly more varied. So last week, I spoke about how in Hotline Miami 1, you get these different masks that you unlock that you can then pick between, uh, you know, on every level. The beginning of Hotline Miami 2 makes you feel like it's going to be the same, where you, you get a choice and they have different abilities and these ones seem more impactful. But you only get to pick the masks when you are playing as a certain group of characters, which are uh, a group of uh, vigilantes, uh, violent vigilantes, actually. And this one sort of switches you around to all these other characters as well on different sides. And with those, you're kind of forced into the, the playstyle for that character. In in a way, I liked this a lot more because it sort of forced me to think about the way I was getting through the levels and made me change up my my playstyle. Whereas in the first game, I was like both times through that, I I sort of found my tactic and I stuck with it all the way through. Um, so just to give you an idea, like one of the characters is like melee only, another one can only punch, but he's he's big and strong, so he's got lethal punches. Uh, some of them start with different weapons, and then you can't actually swap the weapon until your ammo is gone. Some of the characters can dual wield, uh, which is neat because they have this skill where you can do the, the arms akimbo like s- spinning thing, which is really fun. Uh, and one of them even is like two characters in one, so one has a gun and the other has a chainsaw, so you're sort of set for both uh, close-up and distant stuff. Overall, just it's just a really fun game to play, but yeah, the story didn't really do anything for me this time like the first game did it's got all these moving parts to the story and they they just don't come along to a satisfactory like resolution uh it's a bit of a trip 
um, in more, more than one way, and you'll you'll see that if you play it through. Secondly, uh, I also played Doom 3, uh, so I spoke a little bit about it last week, which was based on just, you know, like, early impressions. I was probably a couple of hours in at, at the most. I think I'm about the halfway point in now. Uh, so the thing I just wanted to, to add on to is, uh, well, a couple things. I'll just reiterate. First of all, it's um, still very much a, a slower game than both the original Dooms and the Doom that followed after it, Doom 2016. Um, it's like it's such a drastic pace that it almost feels like a survival horror game at, at times because you're making sure you, you're managing your, your ammo correctly and using the right things against the right enemies. Uh, so it can feel like a bit of the odd middle child in, in the Doom series. Uh, last week I said that uh, it had definitely aged uh, and I was a little bit here or there as to uh, whether it still played well. Um, I think I was a little harsh now that I'm more in the swing of how it feels and how the the gunplay works. Um, But it does definitely make an average impression. You need to give it a couple of hours till you've got a couple of, you know, the better weapons under your belt and it's throwing larger variation of the enemies at you. That said, it still does very much feel like a mid-2000s FPS. There are things in here that absolutely blew my socks off when I first played it back back then, um, such as the animations, particularly the, the death animations, but now just look clunky and awkward. That's, you know, an aside, but it, it's just one of those weird uh, perception differences given to us by time. Equally, uh, though I've played this, like the first third of this game twice before on the original Xbox, and I played a little bit of the BFG version on on 360, and I never actually got through it because I found the atmosphere so choking. Uh, with the benefit of age, that's no longer the case. Uh, so I am actually playing this with with a bit more freedom than I would have done when it originally launched. But there there is still some stuff that holds up. So um, particularly the design of the UAC station, uh, it does have that thing where there's a a lot of grey because that was the thing that was deemed realistic at the time uh, back in the mid 2000s it was all greys and browns um but it does make sense thematically like you're on mars so you expect to see the red and browns but um you you just feel like a mining company uh, in space everything's going to be grey it's just going to be you know that's where they're going to save their money and it also does help um with the lighting which plays a huge part um so that brings me to another comparison to the original games, actually, whereas um, the original games relied a lot on uh, ambushes. So you would walk into a room, you'd see the item you need, like one of the key cards, and you'd grab it, and then suddenly all these fake walls would just drop, and then hordes of enemies would rush you. Um, monster closets. Yeah, monster closets. Um, but they do not work as you start moving towards realist- more realistic graphics. Uh, Id was smart enough to realise that, back then so that instead the station is designed in a way where there are heaps of like pitch black nooks and crannies that hide secrets nasties big monsters they also get around it with uh, t- uh creatures that can teleport uh in in your room on uh, the old pentagons the secret walls are still there but they're used sparingly and where it makes sense so it's just less of this uh gameplay crutch that it was in the the, the older games and also with that, uh, so the old games had a very like systematic, like video gamey thing with the power ups and the the old red, blue, yellow key cards for for unlocking the doors. Uh, this time, when you find a locked door, you ne- you actually need to pick up a PDA that belongs to a station staff member that actually has access to the area. Uh, the PDAs also hide like codes for storage room and weapons lockers, uh, and you know it's 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 done in a way so it's not like 
you know you find the pda that gives you access to the to the locker you actually have to dig through and find the code and then input it into this uh like ui thing that again was impressive back in the day but it's just a bit annoying now and also there's all the laws hidden away in these things you find out about what's happening around the station um as well as the the environmental storytelling which is very good you get all the the blood trails and things that will lead you to surprises and and stuff like that that you know it tells a story in itself just by by looking around so yeah i'm i'm enjoying it a lot more uh one of my favorite things having come immediately from doom 1 and 2 onto doom 3 is seeing the the interpretations of all these classic weapons like they're they're done and fully realized in 3d but I have to say the shotgun is super weedy and that's like basically a war crime in a Doom game. Like that the the shotgun should be like your yeah. your mainstay throughout. It's just it's got no oomph. Uh, one of the loading screens tells you that it um should kill almost anything at point blank range. That is just not been the case at all. It's usually taken me two or three even at point blank. Uh the machine gun has been my main and then that just sort of makes it not feel like Doom. Overall, it's good. I kind of wish it had come before Doom 2016, like as a, a big leader. But I guess they they've dumped these on us now uh, to to help hype up uh, Doom Eternal, uh, which is coming out at some point before the end of the year. And uh, also, Doom 64 has just been rated by the Australian Classification Board, so that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm very much excited for that one because it's it's something I only played a little of back in the day. Uh, and that also leads us nicely onto the next segment, which is news. Okay, so not really news, just more of a, a warning about uh, the kind of month that Switch fans have to look forward to, because there is a lot of games and a lot of long games coming out. <laughs> I'll just run through the list, shall I? Week 1, we've got uh, Spyro Reignited Trilogy. Torchlight 2, Final Fantasy 8 Remastered, Creature in the Well, NBA 2K20. Week 2, we've got Blasphemous, which looks great. Damon X Machina, which doesn't look great. Star Wars Pinball. Which looks great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll have a report around that one. Uh, week 3, uh, Castle Crashes Remastered. Just, I don't have any interest in that one. Uh, Untitled Goose Game, which was an... A nice surprise, but also not the surprise we wanted, because, again, September. Uh, Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening and Nino Kuni, Wrath of the right White Witch. Those last three are all out on the same uh, day. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, week four, we've got Dead by Daylight. We've got Contra Rogue Corps. Darksiders 2, Definitive Edition. Northgard, Ori in the Blind Forest, Definitive Edition. Uh, Dragon Quest Eleven S, Echoes of an Elusive Age definitive edition that is just packed with really long games and i don't think we've even covered on the the D games they're coming september as well right the release date seems to really be up in the air uh that was the original release date was there supposed to be out september 24th but now it seems it's been moved back to october but i have not seen a single official announcement for this so i, I i'm not sure when exactly they are coming out yeah okay uh yeah i thought they were they were nailed in but we'll, we'll keep an eye on that but if they do come in september just just wow just where do we find the time? They were in week four, too. Oh, God. <laughs> like, just, just um, Nino Kuni and Dragon Age, sorry, Dragon Quest Eleven would easily keep someone happy for two months. Like, it's just mad. <laughs> uh, we got that to look forward to, and that's going to be a hard thing for us to cover. So, <laughs> look, uh, look forward to us struggling our way through that. Uh, more of a rumour, really, but an Overwatch-branded Switch case appeared very briefly on Amazon and then was pulled. 
there was also a leaked retail listing uh, rec- which reckoned it was coming in October, thankfully not September. I'm always dubious of the, the photos of retail listings, but, you know, it sort of backs up something that happened. It was a photo of a photocopy, no less. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also, uh, there have been rumors of Tracer in Smash for quite some time and that they're still going on. So maybe there'll be a direct very soon, or otherwise we're looking at BlizzCon in November, which would be a bit late for the the retail listing, but it seems to be one of those uh, no smoke without fire situations. I, I'm I'm sure it's going to come. Hard to say. Uh, I I thought that rumored uh, non-competitive Overwatch spinoff that they're making. I thought that one was more likely to appear. Uh, but it, it, I could see the the real game, like the the original Overwatch game, appearing. And Tracer and Smash Brothers would be cool. That would be a really something I I would never have predicted. <laughs> but... Certainly left field. Um, yeah, I, I can also see a bunch of whiny people being upset about that if that was the case. <laughs> well, Banjo Kazooie was the first character from a Western developer, so the the door has been opened. Yes. So yeah, hopefully that happens. I mean, like Paladins runs and runs really well. I, I yeah. Um, I I feel like they're a developer that um optimizes their PC games well to to be as open to everyone on PC. So considering that the Switch is it's similar in power to a, a low spec PC. It's it's not outside the realms of possibility, and it's certainly got the art style to to flourish uh, on this platform. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. Okay, next up, uh, we're going to hear from Ginny, who's over in Seattle, as we spoke about, uh, attending all the big parties, uh, talking to famous people, and all that, and playing stuff before we're going to get to. So uh, let's hear from her and her PAX report. Hi, so as Andy and Andrew would have already said, I am basically here to deliver the PAX West report. So I have been away at PAX West in Seattle for the past week and um, this episode is going to come out a little bit late because obviously there are some things which we may or may not be able to talk about until a certain point in time. So um, regardless, this is your hot to trot news scoop of everything Switch related that I basically saw at PAX West and also like a little bit of a teaser of stuff that's going to come to the Switch in the future um, which is really exciting so just in terms of that um, I am basically going to crack on and say that my experience with PAX West on the Switch has been phenomenal so we're talking Nintendo Switch Lite impressions and we're talking a bunch of other stuff which you may not yet already know. So yeah, let's just have a crack into it. So first of all, I'm just going to kick off with the Nintendo Switch Lite because why not? Um, and good news for anyone that was thinking that it was going to be really, really flimsy. It's not. It's really not. It is actually really great. So um this as a refresher is a new handheld console from nintendo so it's basically going to just be a lot of a lot just a lot um it is basically portable only you can't dock it um you've got to play on the go and as the resident person on the switch Vegas podcast who plays stuff on the go well i am happy for it i'm here for it Am I going to shell extra money for it when my Switch is still working completely fine? Probably not. I mean, I know that Andrew and myself both have a Joy-Con drift issue, but it's not enough for me to quite abandon the console entirely and try and find a new one. So just, yeah, I wouldn't even sweat it. 
Um, but if you are looking to jump into Switch for the first time, or you have a kid who really wants a Switch, and you want like a lower priced option that is probably just as good, if not better, it feels almost sturdier than the existing Switch because I think you can't attach the Joy-Cons, and I really enjoy the colours it comes in, and as how everything runs on it. So far, no performance dips that I could see from what I demoed, so I'm really happy with it. I think it's a really great addition to the Switch family, and at a really good price point, why wouldn't you want to get it? So that is my, I suppose, my quote-unquote review of my hands-on time with the N Nintendo Switch Lite. I enjoyed it personally, and I think it's worthwhile picking up. And if you can't get your hands on like a demo set somewhere, please go ahead and do it. Um, I promise you won't regret it. Okay, as for what was played um, at PAX West, well, a whole lot of stuff. So I think people are probably most excited to hear me talk about potentially the Switcher. Uh, the name I hate, by the way. Let's go put it out there. I hate the name The Switcher. It's horrific. Uh, but yeah, The Witcher 3 World Hunt, that is it, that is that. Um, that is available on the Switch. And it is great. It runs so much better than I expected. Um, I know that when we were doing um, an episode earlier in the year, we talked about our fears for The Switcher and how that was going to run. And I mean, we get... Octopath Traveler, like, my Switch would chug a little bit playing that, you know, my Switch chugs playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, and it wasn't even a perfect frame rate experience in Fire Emblem Warriors, so I was incredibly worried. But, luckily enough, none of that here, completely fine. Um, and yeah, no, it, it is good. It, it does, it is a visually compressed experience, which obviously we knew that they had to do to put it on Switch to begin with, and that's completely fine. But it is nowhere near as bad as the uh, the sort of low-res mods that people were like using to recreate what they thought it would look like on the Switch. So I, for one, am excited to see more of it. Um, I am definitely someone who is very keen on The Witcher. I think I have on pretty much every platform that it's available on that I currently own. So that's how much I like The Witcher. Um, and I will definitely, as I said before, be shelling out for The Switcher as well. So this will be the complete edition, so it'll come packed with all the DLC, which is some of the best DLC ever created for an RPG. Um, so I highly recommend, if this is your first Witcher Sojourn, I would recommend picking it up, obviously. Um, I'm gonna take my word for it though, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a trailer out at some point, I know we were shown some footage um, at the booth as well, but we're probably gonna see more in the future, so keep your eyes peeled on how that will run. Um, I thought it was great. In terms of games that I couldn't really get the time to play myself and get a hands-on with, we're talking Luigi's Mansion 3 and Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, which I was really, really bummed about because those two looked amazing. Um, and even though I'm a hard-sell on Luigi's Mansion 3, I love Legend of Zelda. Um, so from what I can tell from people who did get a hands-on with the game, though, it looks and plays phenomenally and it is out, I think, not too long from now. So we don't have a whole heap of time to wait. Um, it is incredibly colourful, incredibly beautiful, and I think it's probably one of those remakes that people are going to remember as, I don't want to say iconic because people overuse their words so much, but it was really a good time to watch people play that game. And Luigi's Mansion 3, I don't really have a huge amount of thoughts on that game because it's Luigi's Mansion, my guy. Like, it is not something that is super up my alley or probably will ever be really up my alley. But I, I like that people like it. People are allowed to like that stuff and it looks really fun to play. Um, I've had nothing but positive impressions about that, so I'm pretty stoked. One really cool thing, though, that was at the um, at the event, which we can't really experience unless you go to an event like PAX, was they had a booth where they were basically like showing off the Pokemon from Sword and Shield, kind of like when you're at like a like a safari, 
and someone says, oh, hey, like, check out this rad Pokemon and what they do and what this other Pokemon does and this is, this is what they're into and stuff like that. And I thought that was really fun to look at. Like, the lines were super long uh, for the Nintendo area at PAX. And, I mean, this is the kind of activity that kids love. Um, and, yeah, no, it was a lot. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And I also really enjoyed the other games which they showed off, which are, I think, would say more my style. I'm going to completely pass on Minecraft Dungeons. I admit, I'd even try to get a hands-on with that game because Minecraft and me do not mix. I'm so sorry, Minecraft fans out there, but that was not going to be for me. Uh, however, Damon X Machina. So I love mechs. Just going to put it out there right away. I 100,000% love mechs. And Damon X Machina looks, well, amazing. So um, for the uninitiated, you basically pilot a giant mech and you fight out the giant mechs. And is there anything else I need to, I need to, I need to say to sell you on that? Probably not. Like, Damon X Machina was amazing. So I loved it. I love what I saw of it. Um, demo was not super long, um, but that's okay. I know that there wasn't a lot. There's not been a lot of, about Damon X Machina kind of coming out ever since it was actually properly announced. So it was really nice to actually sit down and play some and see what it come of the concept, which I thought was really, really good. So, yeah, that is sort of where I'm at at the moment um, with uh, with how I feel about Damon X Machina. I know it's going to be released September 13th. So it's, like, literally, like out very very soon so i'm pretty stoked about that and to see i guess how that will look eventually it's being developed by marvelous um so for those that are familiar with marvelous you might know them as the people behind senran kagura peach beach splash or senran kagura estival versus so i'm quite enjoying this pivot from marvelous into demon x machina so i personally am very stoked for that and anyone that loves giant mechs and explosive combat will probably like that it gave me a very sort of like, I don't want to say fluid, it's an overused term, but combat definitely feels very, very seamless, um, despite the technicality of it. So I really enjoy what I saw of Demon X Machina, and I'm pretty stoked to see that out next. And another game that's also been on the horizon for the Switch, I'm going to say Dauntless. So if you'll remember, I briefly talked about Dauntless um, when we talked about games of battle passes, and I said Dauntless might be on the way soon for Switch, and it is, it's on the way. Um, and Dauntless uh, intends to have full cross-platform play, um, which means, and it already does on other platforms, between PC, PS4, and cons- and, and uh, Xbox, you can play. It doesn't matter where you are or who you're matched with, you can play with them. So a Switch user, or well, a PC user can play with an Xbox user, a PS4 can play with a PC user, that kind of thing. So it's a lot, it's out there. Um, as to how they're going to implement that for Switch, I have no idea. Um, I somehow cannot, I somehow don't, I don't know how the interface for Nintendo's online stuff is going to interact with the Dauntless matchmaking system that Phoenix Labs uses. Shout out to them for making this game fully cross-play. I love that stuff, and I know Andrew does too. Um, I just don't really know how that's going to work out here. And Dauntless, like I said, for those who are uninitiated, it is basically Fortnite Monster Hunter. It is a, um, it's, it's a Monster Hunter game, which is incredibly colourful, cel-shaded. It's got... Uh, mechanical similarity to Monster Hunter um, but I would say it reminds me a lot more of I guess a boss rush game reminds me of a boss rush game so I like Monster Hunter where you hunt the monsters through the forest and you have to like track them and figure out their scent figure out where they're nesting and learn those patterns in Dauntless you have to cross it in the world and you just fight it to death and or it fights you to death um there are a ton of biomes, a ton of different status effects. So basically, it's like Monster Hunter. Every monster has its unique little tick, and you can use its parts to make armor and get yourself more skills. It's it's all a huge thing, just like Monster Hunter. 
Um, but this game does have a battle pass, which lets you earn extra rewards in game, which I think are really cool. And I really enjoy using the battle pass on the PC and the PS4 version. So I know Andrew is a battle pass fan with his content in terms of PVE content. It's going to find a lot to do. So um, hopefully this pops off on the Switch. We still don't know exactly, I think, when it's going to come out and, and sort that stuff out. We don't know anything about the online connectivity questions which people I know are going to ask. Um, but yeah, so far we don't know a whole lot, uh, but it looks promising. It does chug a little bit, even docked. It does not perform all that. Well, I am going to say there's quite a bit of popping and the textures are definitely a greater quality, but it's already not meant to be realistic, unlike Monster Hunter. So what do you know? And um, we're also probably going to see a little bit more of titles come to Switch, which might not be, I suppose, the usual indie fair. Uh, I saw one game in particular, which I was actually surprised was going to end up being on the Switch. It's like a kind of 4X vampire, um, empire management, card game, tactical RPG called Immortal Realms Vampire Wars. Um, and the name sounds cheesy, but it was actually really fun to play. You basically play as a vampire lord commanding your clan and you run through the overworld trying to expand your empire um, and you get some randomly generated cards and randomly drawn cards with which to exert skills into yourselves and your followers to power up and when you counter enemies in the overworld it shifts like a tactical rpg type setting where you fight um fight emblem grid battle style you move around and you issue attacks and stuff and commands um it looked pretty intensive like from what i saw on the pc it looked really visually detailed and i'm Keen to see how that will translate to the Switch in 2020, but, you know, stuff like that coming to the Switch, you know, I'm really, really stoked about. So, yeah, I, I thought that was amazing. Um, I really enjoyed what I saw of it, and it's uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. There's the Switch, definitely, a lot of people, when I spoke to people on the show floor, they were like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we want to bring it to the Switch, or, like, we have plans to bring it to the Switch, um, in terms of a lot of indies. So it's really great to see that that ecosystem is still alive and thriving, and there are quite a few games too, which I can't really talk about, which I know are going to come to the Switch next year, and I'm so excited for those. So, no, I am really stoked. I think PAX West was a really, really strong showing for the Nintendo Switch in general. Um, there was also a Dragon Quest uh, 11s demo, which I didn't get to touch, and I'm really sad about that. But I will be playing the Definitive Edition, as I mentioned earlier on the podcast this year, so it won't be a complete hit or miss. But essentially, there's a lot out there on the Switch to look forward to. Nintendo's flagship titles, I think the ones that make the most impression on me, Demon X Machina and Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, this Switcher. And obviously, I'm so really, really sorry about Pokemon Sword and Shield and Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. So that's what I'm looking at. And also looking forward to have more games like Immortal Realms Vampire Wars on there. So I am pretty happy. I'm pretty stoked with what I saw. Um, PAX West was a really good experience. I really missed casting from home, but it is what it is. And it was really fun, and hopefully you guys found some really handy Nintendo information. Um, and we'll keep it out for the Switch Lite as well. Okay, so it's uh, time to talk about what we've been playing this week, or more to the point what Andrew's been playing, because I've already touched upon my stuff in other sections. So first up, Andrew, you picked up Bastion and uh, Transistor. Uh, how did those work out for you? These were on sale, as we reported last week, for incredible prices for 3 and $4. And these are two, I don't want to say legendary indie games, but they're, they're two very well-known indie games. They, they're very well regarded in the indie game sphere from Supergiant Games. And them coming to Switch was a pretty big deal. And them being 3 and $4 is an even bigger deal because... 
again, these are very well-regarded games, uh, which is why last week when I talked about them, I described them as fantastic. Uh, I had very vague memories of playing these on Steam uh, years and years ago, but now that I've replayed them on Switch, I, I wouldn't describe either game as fantastic, really. They're, they're, they're both adequate, but I'm not over the moon about either of them. Uh, first up is was Bastion, which I think is the game that Supergiant really built their reputation on, and it, it is definitely, the, of the two, the game that I prefer. Uh, it's a 3D isometric action-adventure game, action RPG, where you play as this character called The Kid, who wakes up one day in a room that's just literally floating in space, and there's this this raspy-voiced character who narrates everything that the kid does. And so the kid gets up out of bed, and he walks out of his room, and the world starts just appearing around him as he walks forward. And then he gets attacked by some monsters, so he's got to, you know, strap on a gun and a giant hammer and start beating the sense out of everything. And that's kind of the whole game, is you just go forward and... This world is revealed to you, and the narrator refers obliquely to, you know, the backstory of this place. You know, you find the Bastion, which was this super weapon that made the world the way it is, and then you find out the horrible truth about the Bastion, and then you've got to make the choice, and then there's the twist ending, and it's an interesting game. It's not groundbreaking, but I I was satisfied to spend about five hours with it. And then I was ready to move on. Yeah, I, I played this and I think I spoke about it in a previous episode. Um, and I thought it was really good while I was playing it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it now. I think the things like the the narration and the music and the art style carry it a lot. Yes, those are definitely the most memorable things about the game. And it is very much a simple action RPG. I think I was disappointed with the the breadth of weapons you could find. You could probably go back and listen to an old episode and prove me wrong and maybe i said alternate i'm just going from from sketchy memory here but yeah I, I i think that's all it was to say about it, it was just short and sweet and that's my memory yeah i, I kind of see what you mean about the weapons because there actually are a decent number of weapons and you can mix and match uh any two weapons that you want there's a number of melee and ranged options that you can choose from but except for when you first get the weapons when there's usually a little sequence immediately afterwards that's like a little tutorial just designed specifically for that weapon. I basically used the the machine gun and the dagger through the entire game, and those are two of the first weapons you get. And I was putting all my upgrade resources into, uh, into getting those weapons powered up, which was another reason that they were the only two I really used, and they were just really good weapons. So I remember that was my... My recollection i found two like a, a weapon combo that i really liked and i just saw no need to deviate from it at all uh once i i found that that perfect combo but yeah well if you're into 3d action rpgs which we're going to be talking about a lot today actually <laughs> uh you you could do worse than bastion especially when it's on sale again for three dollars and then the follow-up to bastion was transistor and i hadn't played much of this so I didn't have much memory of it, but you can definitely tell this is from the same developer because it's kind of the same thing. Uh, the game begins in media res, like literally it, it picks up like in the middle of an action sequence 
and much like Bastion, the whole game is narrated by this this character, and you play as this former singer named Red, who has had her voice stripped away for reasons that are never adequately explained. So you, you just hear this voice of her boyfriend, or somebody who might be her boyfriend anyway, who has occupied this thing called the transistor which is like this giant two-handed digital sword and it can actually absorb people's essences because this is like a cyberpunk game so it takes place in a physical world but is also a heavily digital world at the same time so people exist but people also exist as microchips or something (laughs) so it can all be absorbed into the transistor look uh my biggest complaint about this game is even after having played it, I still have no idea what is going on. So, <laughs> but it, it's a, it's still an action RPG, but it, it adds a turn-based sort of thing to it where the transistor has this power where it can freeze time and it gives you like this little action bar across the top of the screen that fills up. And as you move, that action bar fills up. And as you use your abilities, it takes out bigger chunks of that action bar. Uh, So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to use this ability to take out as many enemies as you can because they move in like very, very slow motion. It's kind of like bullet time, basically. Um, And you get all of these functions over the course of the game, mostly by either leveling up, what gets you functions, and you find a few at the start of the game just on these these dead bodies you find, and also from the bosses over the course of the game, they also give you a couple of functions. And this is the coolest thing about the game, is how the functions work, is each one can be slotted into different categories, and every function interacts in every category. So, like, even the first function you begin with, which is just, like, your basic attack, you can either use it as your basic attack, as an action skill, or you can apply it to one of your other functions, so it provides a passive bonus, or you can... apply it to your actual passive bonus slot and it gives you a different passive skill for doing that and i basically beat the entire game just using this basic attack because it was that good and like once i got some other functions that like increased the power it dealt when i attacked from behind another one that increased its uh the radius of its damage effect there was really no reason for me to use any other skill in the game than my basic attack which which was disappointing uh it it was just not a terribly interesting game to play and again i i really didn't have much of a clue what was going on through most of it so i I just kind of just stared at it with a blank face the whole time just going wow this is this is a lot of stuff happening, and I don't really care about any of it. <laughs> Transistor was a pretty big disappointment for me. Uh, I still want to play it, um, such as its rep, so uh, I'll get to it at some point. So something else you've been playing is uh, Pinball FX3. Again, one of your mainstays, I think. Uh, and you've been checking out the Fallout table? Yeah, uh, Pinball FX3, I- I've talked about it several times on the show now. It's been creeping up in my, my total... Playtide games. I think it's about to break into the top ten, <laughs> which, considering this is a, a pinball game, is <laughs> pretty impressive. Considering it's going up against the likes of like several hundred-hour RPGs, uh, but I really do think this is a great premium platform. Because when you do download Pinball FX3, as I've described in the past, it just gives you 
the Sorcerer's Lair table, which is an excellent table. It's a very good argument for looking at the other things that you can get in this. But everything else you buy in Pinball FX3 is paid downloadable content. It's not outrageous prices. It's usually a couple bucks, but it's still a premium service platform. Uh, And I, back when this launched at the end of 2017, I bought the Bethesda table pack, which comes with three tables, uh, which has the Skyrim table, the Doom table, and the Fallout table, which I've described at varying times over the course of the of the life of the podcast. Uh, the Skyrim table really goes out of its way to adapt the entire RPG. Like the, It has a persistent character that you play from game to game to game to game, and it saves your progress in the quest, even if you, you, know, you lose all your balls. When you start up the table again, it'll let you pick up where you left off. And the Doom table is an adaptation of Doom 2016, and it's more of a traditional pinball table, but it, it, it it's Doom. Uh, so you're fighting demons, you're blowing stuff up, there's, you know, weapons that you can collect and use against demons. And Fallout definitely falls more into the Doom side of things, as far as being just more of a traditional pinball table. Uh, which kind of surprised me because this does have the special system. Special is the the stat system that the Fallout games use. And it lets you pick a character, and there's even like VATS that you can build up. VATS is in the Fallout since it went first-person shooter. Uh, that's how the game kind of kind of rolls its turn-based RPG aspects as a, a, a callback to the original Fallout games. You can even do that in this, but even though it has those like RPG aspects of it that might make you think it's more like the Skyrim table, it's really not. Uh, You have to make a new character every single game, which was kind of annoying after a while because you do have to do the special over and over every match. And yeah, uh, but you can just hit random at the start, which will get you into the game that much faster. And your stats don't really seem to matter that much. So... uh, that was probably the weakest part of the table was it has these these art, RPG elements just bootstrapped onto it that don't actually seem to affect the game any. Uh, but other than that, it, it's it's just a, a pinball table with a lot of Fallout trappings on it. Uh, you can get jobs working for the different factions in Fallout 4 based on activating certain things on the table and... If you can activate all of the vault quests in the very back of the table and finish all of them, then you can complete the journey. And if you've fully aligned yourself with a specific faction by completing all of their quests, which I have to say I never did, even though I finished all of the challenges on the table, uh, <laughs> then you can get like the real ending of Fallout 4. But if you've ever played a pinball table or especially a digital pinball table, you know that if you can actually manage to activate wizard mode, then you're pretty dang good at the table. Uh, so, but the pinball FX package, what, what really draws me into it is it gives you like 200 mastery points to earn on each table, which you do by accomplishing like specific goals on the table and just finishing like challenges. There are three different challenges you can finish on each table involved in scoring under different conditions and then just just generally just playing the table and doing all the things on it like activating multi-ball activating ball savers just doing all these things 
will get you all 200 mastery points. And I've just really enjoyed just on all the tables I've played doing this. It takes about 10 to 15 hours on each table. And you know, just taking my flip grip, which I've described in the past, which is a product that lets you play with your Switch in portrait perspective. And then the Joy-Cons just strap onto the side of the flip grip. It's kind of awkward looking, but it works really well. And it's so much easier playing pinball with the Switch in your, your portrait format. And I just I think this is a great platform. I, I didn't really love all the Bethesda tables, but Sorcerer's Lair, which you get for free with Pinball FX3, is excellent. And Star Wars Pinball, which is coming out in September, is from the same developer, and they have quite a backlog of Star Wars tables, and they're all just coming out in this this one package in September. So I'm definitely looking forward to playing that. <laughs> nice. Pinball's never been a thing that I've gotten into, and I've dabbled a little bit on pinball effects over the years, but I've, I've just never hit it that hard. I don't know what it is. I think it's just me and score attacks just don't get along really. I like to, to finish something and move on. So. Well, me too. I mean, that's why when I'm playing them, I'm not really playing for score attacking, even though I, I play so much, I inevitably end up as like the number one person among my friend group, because mm-hmm. that's another nice thing about Pinball FX3, is it does have like a lot of top-end uh, just competitive stuff. Like It has tournaments you can play against the world, but it also keeps track of your score and your best score for the week and just compares you to your local friend group. But what what I really play for is those mastery ratings. If Pinball FX3 did not have those table mastery scores, I probably wouldn't play it nearly as much. And that's exactly why I don't play like the Pinball Arcade and the other uh, pinball platforms that are out on Switch because it just doesn't have those things. Yeah. But Pinball FX3 does. So if like if you're more of a meta gamer like me, and, like you like to really you know look at everything there is to do in a game and do all of it, then I think Pinball FX3 you should definitely look at it. Nice. Uh, and then the last game we're going to talk about, or more so you're going to talk about, uh, is Collection of Mana. Uh, this is a game that I've uh, ultimately ended up with twice, uh, because when it came out in Japan, I was convinced it was never going to see a Western release, and it, for a long time... It that was a safe guess. <laughs> certainly seemed that way, so I got I got a imported copy, um, and then, uh, yeah, so it came out, so I've now got the English copy, so the brother and sister are united. Um, I don't know when I'm going to get to play these. Uh, I I know that they're kind of like spin-offs from Final Fantasy, um, which mm. itself has a bunch of spin-offs. I know they're probably going more for brand recognition rather than anything else. A set of those games where I know I should have played them by now. Um, they've been on my to-playlist practically forever. Um, the Switch is definitely the place I want to do it. Um, so yeah, t- so tell us about Collection of Mana and, and what it actually is and uh, what you think of what you've played of it so far. A Collection of Mana contains the first three games in the Mana series, or Seiken Densetsu, as it's originally known in Japan, and variously is known throughout the world because well there's a very special game in this package which was never localized in the west until just this summer uh, which was always known as Seiken Densetsu 3 uh, but is now known as Trials of Mana. So this goes all the way back to the original game in the series which was actually a Game Boy game. It's called variously Final Fantasy Adventure or Mystic Quest or Seiken Densetsu, which is why it's not really a Final Fantasy spinoff. It was just 
branded that way in some markets because it was easier to sell a game uh, off a known brand rather than going, here's something called Seiken Densetsu, please play it. (laughs) (laughs) But Final Fantasy Adventure does still have a lot of Final Fantasy elements in it, which kind of disappear in later games. It has the Chocobo appears and a lot of the... You can team up with a lot of the classic Final Fantasy characters like... In one early dungeon, you team up with the Red Mage, apparently, just so you can have somebody to team up with. Uh, and then it also has two Super NES games. It has Secret of Mana, which is, you know, part of the the Super NES RPG trifecta, along with Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy III. Like, of, of the JRPGs, you know, maybe Earthbound you could wedge in there, but Earthbound really didn't get acknowledged until very recently as being the influential and big game it is but like back in the 90s secret of mana final fantasy 3 slash 6 and chrono trigger were the rpgs to have played and then as i i mentioned earlier there's there's trials of mana which is available in this package fully localized for the first time in the west as long as you ignore that groundbreaking and infamous fan translation that came out in the very early 2000s which i tried to play a number of times but uh, i just i could never get into it because it just just playing as a rom just it just felt wrong to me so (laughs) i never got into the rom all three of these games are action rpgs so they are rpgs they are ruled by statistics but they're played in real time and you control the actions of your characters in real time in combat. Uh, Whenever you're not in town, your character has their weapon drawn and you're doing combat with monsters that are running all over the map. And that is the thread that binds all three of these games together. Although when you play them, they are actually, all three of them, very different games. All three of them also have NPC allies, which are very important. Uh, Final Fantasy Adventure, you're followed at different times in the game by a companion and you can actually... You can stop and you can ask them for help and they they will provide different services for you. Like there's your main partner character throughout the game. Uh, she will actually provide a passive healing effect for you, which is really overpowered. Basically, when you have her around and like if you know what the, the ask feature does in that pause menu, uh, you will never die. Or another character will actually sell you items, which is almost as broken as a passive healing effect that doesn't cost any mana and never goes away uh so and then secret of mana the big selling point on this game when it first came out was it was actually fully multiplayer if you had enough controllers for it one person can play it solo very conveniently but uh once you have all three characters they're always with you at all times and you can direct them using a ring menu which was this big innovation back then but now it's kind of ponderous now and just kind of looks ridiculous (laughs) but when you open a menu a little ring will show up around the character and you can control all their actions through this ring menu while the game just pauses for a moment while you make these decisions uh and it also has very limited ai controls where like you can actually choose whether character favors attack or defense and chooses like the range that they attack from they either stay far away or get right up in the enemy's face which you can immediately see this effect in action and it has a pretty major uh, effect on on your party's survivability really 
And th this was pretty groundbreaking stuff back in the day. And then there's Trials of Mana, which I've really only started playing very recently because I just could not get into that ROM. But Trials of Mana has, in terms of its combat system, I have a hard time believing it's a Super NES game. This is the most technically impressive Super NES game I have ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I would have absolutely believed that this is one of those PlayStation 1 games that came out that was still using sprite graphics if someone had told me that instead. But nope. This is a Super NES game. Back in Secret of Mana, it had this weird stamina bar that would fill up uh, to 100%. It literally takes like one second to build up to 100%, but it's to stop you from just face tanking every monster and just spamming the attack button. If you don't wait for your meter to be filled up to 100% before you attack, then the attack whiffs. It either misses or it only deals one or two damage, and it's just absolutely worthless. That really dictates the pacing of Secret of Mana. Trials of Mana kind of builds on that. That meter is still there, but it's in the background now. And control is taken away from the character a little tiny bit. If you press the attack button, it does prompt your character to attack. But if they're not ready to attack, they won't do anything. Uh, and this is where the game does struggle a bit, is it doesn't really explain a lot of these mechanics. But what you're actually supposed to do is you're supposed to hold the attack button down. And that will take your player character and put them in the same kind of AI pattern that your partner characters are acting in. And it, it works a lot better once you figure that out. But there's nothing in this game that tells you that. And unfortunately, the manuals, air quotes, that are included with the collection of mana is literally just a screenshots of the controller with little arrows pointing at them that says what each button does. Uh. It's not much of a manual. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later on, but... Anyway, th that's what each game really has in common is this this combat system that's all building on the action RPG concept, which the Mana series as a whole, beginning with Final Fantasy Adventure, they, they kind of, they didn't invent this genre, but they really built it. Many action RPGs that you play today owe a lot to the Mana series and especially to these three games. Uh, so that goes all the way back to Final Fantasy Adventure, where... It, it is a Game Boy game, and it's very much presented that way. They've done multiple remakes of this game over the years. I'm very, very glad that they just put in the original Game Boy game, because it is still the one I far prefer to Sword of Mana, which was on Game Boy Advance, and Adventure of Mana, I think, was the iOS remake they made. But this is the one I definitely prefer, and I'm very concerned people are going to look at this as like, oh, this is a Game Boy game, I'm not going to play this. Please don't do that. This is an excellent, excellent game. It does still have, you know, problems from, you know, the era it was made in. You know, th this came out in the same kind of design era of, like, you know, Castlevania two. Uh, you know, beat your head on the wall to progress, which means drop a, a head of garlic on the ground. <laughs> Same basic idea here. Um, like, uh, there's a puzzle in the desert to reveal, reveal Medusa's cavern. Do not be ashamed if you have to use a guide to figure this thing out, because there's one NPC in one town who gives you the vaguest hint on how to open this thing up. And then once you get inside that cavern, well, and this applies to every dungeon, this is a Game Boy game, so... What they were really able to do with enemy AI is limited. Uh, enemies all work through collision damage, so they don't really have attack patterns. They just kind of wander around, and if they blunder into you and deal some damage, yay for the enemy. Uh, so, unfortunately, this means that they are 
perfectly happy to camp in doorways and in narrow gaps, including uh, since they're randomly populated every time you enter a room, it's entirely possible for you to immediately walk into a room and just find an enemy standing on top of you. It's not the best. It can be a little frustrating. I can understand somebody just getting completely fed up with it and just giving up, but the, the, the difficulty on this game, as I've already described with the partner character who has infinite free healing, is is really not that great. So if you just spend a, a few minutes in each area just smacking some enemies around until you level up, I, I don't think you'll have a problem. But I, I just say again, you know, it's a Game Boy game. Just don't dismiss it just because of that. This is a very impressive Game Boy game, I think. Uh, much like Trials of Mana, I, I think you would have difficulty believing that this was on the Game Boy, but really there were a lot of great Game Boy games, and this was one of them. And then we move into Secret of Mana, which was... I think this is the mana game most people know about this is the one that has the most mainstream exposure because this was the first game to be released in the west under the mana title and was the biggest deal for the long time but i actually think this this might be the weakest game of the three which is really a shame uh i i can say that in the 90s as a very as a very young very ignorant child uh Final Fantasy Adventure and Secret of Mana were the games that got me into RPGs. I would not be playing all the other RPGs I, did, I am today if not for these two games and then a little later on Super Mario RPG. <laughs> uh, but Secret of Mana is another action RPG. It runs in real time. and Its big innovation is the weapon and magic systems. Uh, you have three characters in the game who can all use any of the weapons in the game that you want. And all of those weapons can upgrade up to eight not eight times it might be nine times but i think it, it, they all go up eight times and you just upgrade them over the course of the game as you find these orbs and orbs drop from enemies or orbs drop from bosses and you can also find them hidden away in dungeons so there's there's really a reason to explore fully every area in secret of mana but this this is a, a very rudimentary hack and slash game there are magic systems that you unlock i do think it takes way too long for this game to give you magic uh in the grand scheme of things it, it only takes a couple hours but this is a super nes area rpg so it's only a 10 to 15 hour game uh so that that is actually a pretty significant chunk of the game where literally all you can do is just smack things with your sword once every two or three seconds and it's really not that interesting to play compared to other far more active RPGs that don't have that obnoxious stamina meter that I described, including Final Fantasy Adventure, which is the game that precedes this one, which doesn't put that limitation on you, so it's a far more aggressive game to play. And you do get magic eventually, but the two magic users you have in your party, they don't really get much mana to work with. It's practically the end of the game before... Magic has gotten to a place where it's actually viable to use it a lot. Uh, so pretty much this whole game is you just smacking things with your sword every two to three seconds. Uh, but what makes it interesting is this is a really beautiful game. And it's got one of the all-time great soundtracks. Uh, you, you may remember when the remake came out last year that there was some 
consternation among reviewers about the soundtrack in that game because what they did to the soundtrack in the remake was a travesty uh, <laughs> but luckily we're back on the super nes version now we're getting the original soundtrack which is just an absolutely incredible accomplishment like really the soundtrack across all three of these games is excellent and also just to see this game as just a curiosity because this game was supposed to be Square's big debut on the Super NES CD-ROM add-on, uh, which infamously led rise to Nintendo's biggest modern-day competitor. It was a huge blunder. Uh, if you don't know that story, please look it up. It's fascinating. It is absolutely Nintendo shooting themselves in the foot in the worst way possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... The Super NES CD-ROM add-on did not happen, uh, so this game was supposed to be on it, and they had to hack it into pieces just to fit it into a cartridge, which you can really tell in the latter half of the game, where the story just basically vanishes, and it's just you ricocheting all over the world. Um, this this is a real curiosity of a game to look at if you're just in the, into the history of video games. This is one is indispensable. So th- this game was a big deal, but I, I, I really think, I, I really do hate the phrase hasn't held up, uh, because things don't hold up. They're either good or they're not. Uh, so <laughs> this game's bad now. It was bad in the 90s. We just didn't know any better. Um, but of the three games in the collection of mana, I do think this is the least of them, but is still worth looking at. And then we get into Trials of Mana. Uh, as I said, this is technically speaking the most impressive super nes game i've ever played you know there might there might be something else out there that is better but just in terms of what they accomplished with this technology like i said i I really would have expected this to be a playstation one game not a super nes game because this has an honest to goodness calendar system with daylight cycles uh you can see how they hacked it to work it it doesn't actually run in real time it's just every time you switch screens, the time of day changes subtly, uh, and that's how it progresses forward through each area. Um, and, you know, things change. Like at nighttime, the enemies you fight at night will change, and what's going on in town will change. So, like, the shops will be closed at night, so you got to go and stay at the inn to make it daytime if you want to buy weapons and armor. But you go to one town, there's actually a black market that's only open at night, so... You know, cool little things like that that that's, is very common nowadays, but this might actually be the first game that actually did that stuff, certainly on consoles. And this will sound familiar to uh, Switch RPG fans. There are six main characters, each of whom have an individualized origin story. Uh, and your main character that you choose of the six determines one of three different stories that you'll experience over the course of the game with a unique you know, big bad that leads up that each story leads up to in the end game. There's two sets of characters that that even though they start in two different kingdoms, th- their their stories kind of intersect. As I alluded to before, with um, the combat systems in Trials of Mana, there this game needs a tutorial, but it was made before in-game tutorials were really common. Uh, and I'm sure all this information was in the manual of the original, but again, this game was never localized in the West, so if there 
is uh, a localization of the manual, then Square has not included it with this game. So a lot of information that's out there, really, I beg of you, just look it up on the internet. I tried playing through this game blind, and it was a disaster. Uh, But I, I went back and I looked up um some information there's an excellent article on kotaku uh things you need to know before playing trials of mana that really helped me out uh but of the six main characters good luck telling what any of them do just from the character select screen because it tells you their name and their class and doesn't tell you any other information so i kind of gleaned from that that like angela the magician would be my offensive spellcaster but as she as for how offensive spellcasting will work, what skills she gets, how she is in combat, uh, I could gain absolutely no information from that short of playing the game for seven hours with her to find out. <laughs> <laughs> and like Kevin, who is like the melee character, I think his, his job description is grappler. Kevin is a werewolf. Uh, good luck finding this out from the character select screen. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, do some research before playing this game. I'm, I'm really enjoying this game. I'm, I'm loving it. It's one of the best experiences with the Super NES game I've had uh, probably since Chrono Trigger, which is a good 25 years of my life ago now. Um, but the downside of this character selection system is your characters are locked into their starting weapons. So like in Final Fantasy Adventure, you get a wide range of weapons to use, and you have to use a bunch of them in puzzle solving. Secret of Mana has the very same thing. Uh, you get like eight different weapons to choose from, I think, and you can mix and match them between any character you want, and each weapon has like different skill levels characters can build up to as well. Trials of Mana, like, Hawkeye uses a dagger. That's all Hawkeye uses the entire game is daggers. So that whole system of using weapons to puzzle solve has been completely stripped out of Trials of Mana. That is my main complaint about this game, is the variety in your weapon selection and in, you know, solving puzzles as you progress through the world just is not there just by nature of this system that they've chosen to do but the upside of it is the weapon system in combat is a lot more interesting to use the characters depending upon what weapon they use have very different attack animations very different attack styles like hawkeye who i described a second ago he he uses a dagger but in combat he actually has two so he actually hits twice for every time you attack compared to like your other physical fighters who have bigger, stronger weapons, but attack much slower and only hit once. Uh, Hawkeye, I've just been tearing the game to pieces with him. And again, there's nothing on the character select screen that would tell you that <laughs> this character can do this. And that leads directly into difficulty. Uh, again, after I read that guide on Kotaku, I-, I did much better in this game, but originally i was trying to play this game like it's secret of mana so i had a physical fighter and then i had angela as my offensive spellcaster and then i had the the party's healer who is charlotte and your first time through this game you want charlotte on your team uh just just don't even argue with me on it just just take charlotte as one of your characters um 
that was kind of trying to replicate the party in Secret of Mana, who also has a physical fighter with no magical ability, then an offensive spellcaster, and a defensive spellcaster. That was a disaster. It did not work. There's the importance of items for keeping your party alive. Now, in Secret of Mana, it's very easy to ignore items. A big reason for that is you can only carry four of each item at a time. Trials of Mana, that is no longer true. You can carry as many of an item as you want, and you can have, like, in your active item slots, you can have up to nine at a time, uh, which you can replenish between battles. Um, and I was just trying to play through the first boss, like it's a boss in Secret of Mana, which I just keep whacking until he dies, but... I needed to heal. I had to use healing items. And even later on, uh, when I did have access to healing magic, a lot of the times healing magic was not immediately available to me just by nature of the fact that my healer was either being wailed on or too busy wailing on things to accept commands from me. So I had to use healing items. And healing items are also, in contrast to Secret of Mana, dirt cheap. I was able to buy... I was able to cap out my inventory on candy in like the first hour of the game, which would be unthinkable in Secret of Mana. So if you're like me and you're coming to Trials of Mana after playing Secret of Mana your entire life, you're going to have a shock. <laughs> this is a very different game. Uh, but I carried on with that, that Secret of Mana style party uh, until I've heard the first third of the game was about as far as I got. Uh, and then I ran into something that I'm choosing to call Magic Traffic Jams. It was the first boss I encountered that regularly cast magic spells. And this was also true in Secret of Mana, uh, when uh, a boss is in the process of casting a spell or using a spell. Oh, like when their animation is going off, you are locked out of your casting meters you cannot do it that wasn't really a problem in secret of mana you just wait for them to finish casting it's fine in trials of mana i ran into what i've called the magic traffic jams where there was so much going on in these boss fights that i was just flat out unable to get spells off uh and it was awful uh i needed to heal by casting magic and also i had angela on my team so a big chunk of my DPS was coming from offensive magic. So I was trying to have it both ways with magic. I was just competing for what little time was available to cast magic between these two characters. And there was a boss that was throwing so much at me, I just I couldn't beat him. So I restarted with two physical fighters and then Charlotte as the healer. And I've been tearing the game up ever since. I have not had that problem again. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's been my main obstacle was just just learning how this game wants to be played but it hasn't been positive all the way around like uh like secret of mana trials of mana has uh limited ai option abilities they don't seem to do anything like i i changed the ai in this game to attack the same target as my main party member they completely ignore that command and just attack whoever they want. That, that function doesn't seem to do anything. And also, much to my dismay, this is one of those RPGs where every time you level up, you have to uh, allocate your own stats, which I, I'm just terrible at. I always do it wrong, and uh, it appears that it's the same thing here. Um, I 
allocated my stats wrong in my first attempt to play through and uh it was just bad like dexterity apparently is bugged it doesn't do anything uh which was actually really common for rpgs from this area final fantasy 3 also had a big stat point that didn't actually have any function in the game but it was easier not to notice because final fantasy 3 automatically allocated your stats for you um but basically don't put any points into dexterity unless you're playing as Hawkeye because he's the only person who actually uses that stat point. Put all of your stats into your primary damage, which would be strength and intelligence, and into stamina, which is uh, gets your hit points up. And the menus. Uh, the menus in this game are convoluted, and they do not work very well. Uh, they're very laggy. This, this was apparently even true on the Super NES. Like, seriously, on your main menu where you equip your characters and you look at their stats and everything it's divided into this three by three grid each grid is one screen and it it takes a good second or two before the game even acknowledges that you pressed a button on this screen and then there are two other menus that you use at different points throughout the game Uh, there's a definite learning curve here and i think if you played secret of mana before you play this that will help you a lot in navigating these menus. But if you jump straight into Trials of Mana, I think these menus are going to baffle you. (laughs) And then also, just because this is an RPG from the mid-90s, it's not always clear what you need to do next. Uh, There's one really great example. Uh, I got to this kingdom, and I was kind of landlocked there. There was no way to get out of this kingdom, because early on, the only way to get around and transport is to use cannon travel, which is kind of an early mana series joke where like literally how you got around was you get in a giant cannon and this dwarf fires you to the area you want to go to (laughs) i was trapped in this this castle and its nearby area unable to get out of it um i found the cannon but it just wasn't working uh basically i had to go into town and i had to find this one random npc who has no name in a in a house of no importance and she says i hear there's a cannon ready to be fired in the castle now then i could go in and i could leave uh (laughs) this is completely par for the course for rpgs of this era but still it's frustrating and that is not the only example of having to talk to a random npc to make anything happen in this game um, there's also a few areas where like you have to activate something that there's no on-screen indication you can activate it. Like, like I said at the start with the classes and building your party, don't don't be ashamed if you have to use a guide in a few places in this game. This this was from a different era of game design. Like it, it's not your fault if you don't understand everything this game wants you to be doing. It, it's just. It's it's just an older style RPG, and this was just the nature of how they were made back then. But Trials of Mana, and Secret of Mana, and Final Fantasy Adventure. I'd like to use the phrase essential RPGs, but like, unless you grew up with these games, or in in the era of these games, I guess Andy hasn't played them, but I think you would still enjoy them, Andy, because like you were a kid in the 80s and 90s, so like you 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 were concurrent for the games in that era and you might appreciate where these games are coming from but unless you're like nostalgic for that era like andy or i maybe or you're interested in the history of rpgs and game development 
I, I don't know if I could recommend these games for you, but, you know, I grew up with Final Fantasy Adventure and Secret of Mana. They are the reason I play RPGs today, and Trials of Mana is, you know, one of the great legendary games that never made it to the West. They're all here now, and I, I think if you're interested in the history of RPGs or just in, you just, you're interested in playing them i think you should definitely give them a chance yeah i'm definitely interested um and i will definitely be starting with the game boy one because i love me some game boy (laughs) yeah uh so uh with that uh let's move on to what we're playing this week so andrew what are you playing uh spyro reignited trilogy is out tuesday and creature in the well which um Creature in the Well has been getting a lot of reports on its difficulty, so I'm very concerned about it, but it looks interesting. So those are the two I'm playing next week. Yeah, definitely looked interesting. Uh, me, I'm going to be playing Astral Chain. I picked that up on Friday along with a Collection of Mana. Uh, I just wanted to sort of start it at the beginning of this week and have a full week of it behind me before I spoke about it. So I uh, look forward to that. And that's it. Thanks for listening to episode 88 of the Switch Focus podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us to get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn and other podcast services. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy us a coffee. Details for that are on our website. Thanks in advance. Uh, and if you want to follow the three of us on Twitter, you can do so. I'm at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. He also streams at twitch.tv forward slash Play Critically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. Yeah, that's it. Uh.